Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome to our 250 episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining podcast. Um, it's a great achievement and milestone for the podcast. And I wanted to bring a special guest on and someone I wanted to bring on the show personally for the last few years, but couldn't manage because of timing. Um, but has now agreed to do our, be our 250th guest. So Nathan Tinkler, a well-known Australian mining executive with a colourful and interesting past, who began his career as a qualified electrician in the coal mines of the Hunter Valley, um, and soon rose to be one of the leading executives in the Australia in Australia's coal mining industry. Um, he made some shrewd investments between 2006 through to 2012, and was named by BRW magazine as Australia's youngest billionaire. His career, unfortunately, took a turn for the worst over the next few years, um, which I'm sure he'll cover this in the, in the podcast. Um, Nathan is now the CEO of Bentley Resources and is going to give us an insight to his career, um, his highs, his lows, and more importantly, talk about his passion, which is the coal industry, and why coal is needed, um, and what the future holds for the uh, black stuff. So that's welcome, Nathan, to the podcast. How are you doing, Nathan? Yeah, well, thanks, Rob. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Glad we could finally... No, uh, no, and I appreciate your time as well. Um, and I'm, like I said, I've, I've wanted you uh, to be, come on as a guest over the last few years, and obviously now we can make it happen. So um, obviously this podcast goes out to about 170-plus countries around the world. Obviously those that are in Australia know know and know of you. Um, but for those that don't know um, your your career, your background, I want to give our audience an overview um, of your career from those days that you started, uh, started in the mining industry um, and how your career sort of developed to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Um, look, I, I started off uh, '94. Um, in um, I got a job at a place called Bayswater Coal as a as an apprentice electrician um, in the Hunter Valley. So uh, Bayswater Coal is now known as uh, Mount Arthur North uh, that BHP had, but back then it was privately owned. Um, so I'd done my apprenticeship there. Uh, lots of fun during that time. Uh, you know, it expanded. It went from being a, a small operation um, doing sort of a million tons a year to uh, by the time I left, uh, six million tons a year and um, but it fell into the hands of uh, Billiton, as it was then, before uh, before the merger. Um, so, uh, yeah, done my time there, and then I uh, spent a bit of time with uh, P&H, uh, building some drag lines and face shovels and stuff, uh, so a fair bit of construction, and then and then got involved in the construction of um, uh, the Bengala mine, uh, which was uh, which is still you know, a very low-cost, good operation today. Uh, it was owned by Peabody at the time, so I um, so had some time there, and, uh, and then when Rio Tino, uh, Peabody sold out of Australia, um, I don't know what year that was, maybe 2005, six, something like that. Um, uh, they sold it to Rio Tino. And, uh, and you know, basically uh, Rio Tino demonstrated, well, they got out of coal mining and they took that over because they basically trebled the amount of people at the mine and uh, become fairly unproductive and I decided I'd uh, like to move on. So um, so uh, I did. I started my own business in uh, maintenance, um, electrical maintenance, and um, done a bit of work uh, mainly around the Hunter Valley at that point in time. Um, before uh, um, uh, my, I suppose what I considered my specialty in the 
in the maintenance field was sort of lowering cost profiles and um, and you know electric drive machinery, um, you know trucks, drag lines, space shovels, that sort of stuff. So um, that sort of lowering cost profiles and, and sort of developing cost pro- profiles for uh, operations sort of led me into feasibility studies and stuff. And we worked with a few people on on their assets and trying to develop them a cost profile, which looked uh, which you know looked economic. Um, that sort of gave me a, a, a sort of had a bit of a look around it at all that and sort of went, wow, I, I think there's still, you know, I was only one small part of it with the maintenance. I, I thought there was ways that uh, things could be done better and stuff. So uh, um, decided to launch out and uh, have a crack on my own to, to do that. Um, found a company uh, was listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange called Sanon Resources um, back in about 2006. And those guys uh, <coughs> were effectively a bunch of uh, oil and gas executives that had, you know, traded uh, some assets for some coal assets in uh, in Queensland, a town called Middlemount. Uh, Middlemount was a you know very good, uh, very strong mining area. Number of you know Anglo and and uh, BHP and these sort of guys, you know, in, in close uh, with good assets in close proximity. So um, and they had they had an asset which was you know dormant. It was just a cow paddock, but uh, you know it still had a a um, you know a lot. Of, I thought a lot of potential. Um, from uh, historic drilling results and stuff, which didn't show a lot of coking, uh, a lot of co- co- a lot of coking characteristics. But I'd sort of been around and met all the guys that had done the testing and the drilling, and they all said, "Look, you know, we we pulled those cores and they sat in the shed for twelve months, and then they tested them." So, uh, you know, anybody who knows much about uh, the characteristics of coking coal and stuff will tell you that uh, you know, leaving them in the hot sun, you're not really going to get a, a good definition of, uh, of coking coal property. So. Um, so yeah, I sold my house, put a million dollars down, and uh, and had six months to sort of drill and prove that up um, to pay those guys. And uh, you know, during that time, I was fortunate we got uh, got a group. I thought I was fortunate. Got a group called Noble in at the time. Uh, Noble were a trading group out of Hong Kong, and uh, those guys come in and bought thirty percent of the mine for around one hundred and fifty million, which uh, was a winning day for me, and sort of set us on our on our way to um, or set me on my way to to sort of you know building a coal mine. I thought. Um, you know, at that point in time, uh, you know, markets were improving. You know, we were in the middle of, we were, we were headed towards the GFC, but nobody quite knew that at the time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, uh, the mine went well, the development went well. It's now sort of one of the, one of the, uh, the strong mines in Peabody's uh, portfolio in a joint venture with uh, Yankol. Um, so, uh, you know, it stood the test of time and been sustainable and, I'm, you know, I'm proud of that. Um, uh, but I, yeah, I was forced to sell the mine to, uh, or had to sell the mine to MacArthur Coal. They had partners that had helped me at the time, and they wanted to exit. And um, I uh, got to know a guy called Ken Talbot, who was uh, uh, probably the closest thing I ever had to a mentor in the industry. You know, Ken was a, a self-made man, mining engineer, uh, come from, um, we'll say, we'll say, good stock, but uh, probably not the highest socioeconomic stock. A bit like myself, so we had a lot in common. Enjoyed a beer in the footy and that sort of stuff. And uh, you know, we. Um, uh, it was uh, when I sold into there. I took shares in MacArthur, and um, yeah, that was that was uh, you know a pretty interesting time. Uh, obviously, um, metallurgical coal was going through the roof, sort of an historic high. And so we, uh, um, I said to Ken, "Look, how long do you plan on doing this? Maybe we, uh, maybe we sell and get out." And uh, you know, being a public company in Australia is not easy, and uh, that was sort of my first experience with that. Um, so I was. You know, I had a lot of bright lights hitting me in the face at the time because um, uh, everyone wanted to know who this new young guy was that had done this. And uh, um, I probably wasn't, uh, I probably couldn't understand the interest and really didn't want it either. So, um, you know, being public and, and stuff like that and everybody measure your wealth and write about it all the time, it's just like, oh, I really don't want to be in this space. So, 
So I um <laughs> I done what I thought was right and uh, and said to Ken, let's let's sell. And uh, he said, what do you think it's worth? And I'd taken my shares at the time at like six dollars, I think, which was a which was another high, a historic high from MacArthur Gold at the time. And uh, <clears throat> and I uh, so I thought, well, I'm, you know, the people that are buying everything in the sector at the moment are extrata. Um, I'll go and have a chat with those guys and uh, and put that in front of them. Um, uh, and I said, well, tell me why this isn't worth $20 a share. And, uh, you know, I spent six weeks working with them and all that sort of stuff and them doing their due diligence. And uh, and they come back and said, look, we don't think it's worth $20 a share. We'll give you uh, we'll give you $19. And I went, well, that buys me all day. I'm out. And, <laughs> and I went and seen Ken and I said, mate, um, you know, there's, there's $19 a share on the table here from these guys. Let's go and, let's go and see it. And... Uh, and he said, "Oh, well, just hang on. You know, you know, we we could get twenty. And I said, "Mate, you know, I think the share price was still like seven dollars or something at the time." I said, "I think, uh, I think I need to get out, mate. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna wait too much longer. The work's done, sort of thing." And um, anyway, Ken, uh, uh, you know, he'd set up that company. He was the founder. He'd set up all the trading relationships. And uh, as it turned out, there was a there was a guy in London that had a rather big supply contract with uh, MacArthur Coal, uh, and he was obviously looking to protect that. Um, and uh, I got a phone call the next day from, uh, it might have been a day or two after, from um, from uh, Macquarie Bank saying that we're holding uh, $450 million here for you, sign this transfer form, and, uh, and it's yours. So uh, that turned out to be, I didn't even know who the buyer was at the time, but it turned out to be Arsenal Mattel. And, uh, and then those, I was out of MacArthur Coal. So, um, you know, I think Ken, you know, I only had uh, like nine, I think nine or 10% of the company. I think Ken had 30 odd. So it was, uh, you know, he, he sold down some as well and, um, and, then, uh, and then continued on his, his merry way with, uh, with other things before his unfortunate, uh, unfortunate accident. So, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a, a very good deal at the time. And then, uh, and then post that, um, you know, GFC hit. Uh, that was a pretty ugly event for me personally. You know, I had a lot of... Uh, Obviously, you know, when you get money, you don't leave it sitting in the bank, you invest in the stock market and that sort of stuff. So that was, uh, wasn't great. But it also presented a lot of opportunities as well. Uh, one of those was the opportunity to buy Malls Creek off uh, Rio Tenor. So I, uh, you know, um, approached them about that um, as, as what usually happens when Nathan Tinker approaches someone about selling a mine and then go, oh, we'll run a process, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, that wasted another... Uh, you know, a few months, six months, I suppose. It was a pretty quick process by today's standards because, you know, the GFC, it's probably the only time I've ever seen where people like Rio Tino, BHP are actually under stress from debt. Um, you know, they, were, they had a lot of stuff going on. I think Rio was carrying maybe 40 billion of debt at the time. They wanted to wipe that out and they needed to show the market, you know, that they were that they could do that. So <clears throat> um, not, not very often. I haven't seen a time since where those guys have been forced to offload assets. So, um so anyway, we got there, um, and it was it was great, not just because they were offloading assets, but also because there just wasn't a lot of money around either. Um, you know, people like Glencore and all these, you know, China hadn't really hit the market. It wasn't, it was competitive, but it really wasn't that competitive. So, um, you know, I think everyone's market cap had dropped. Everyone who was listed, I think MacArthur Coal went down from, you know, went down about $300 million market cap. Um, and I thought, well, the irony of, uh, of buying that back at the time, but... Uh, uh, it just proved too hard dealing with boards and stuff. But um, uh, so so anyway, we come out. We paid four hundred and uh, four hundred seventy five million, I think, from from Mall's Group. Funded mainly out of uh, Singapore, um, a group called Farallon Capital, um, uh, with a and a number of private firms uh, helped me fund that. 
And then, um, you know, we turned around and listed that sort of within uh, within 12 months um, as Aston Resources, um, sort of listed at about 1.5 billion market cap. It was the biggest coal listing on the ASX at the time and um, raised $500 million. So, you know, we, you know, unfortunately from that point on, you know, it was very good times for the coal industry, but we weren't able to participate in it because uh, uh, the approvals process in New South Wales basically got uh, completely abolished. Um, you know, there was a... A part three a uh, process in there for approvals. Uh, they abolished that uh, without any um, without any thought of you know having something there ready to go to replace it. And uh, it took um, nearly nine years to get a to get an approval uh, to mine that asset. So even though you know it had a mining lease on it, uh, we wanted to adjust the mining lease for uh, you know increased production and place where we put the infrastructure and move the rail on and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, nine years. So. Uh, you know, when you buy these things, you never quite think that, uh, you know, you think, you know, well, this is going to be inject a lot of money into the economy and employ people and all that sort of stuff and the government's going to be interested. Uh, turns out they weren't. And, um, you know, government in Australia, both at a state and federal level, has been pretty ordinary here for the last 10 or 15 years and that's just another example of it. So, uh, you know, that, that brought, um, you know, that sort of took me up to 2012 where there was a, a real infrastructure need around the industry. So the, everybody had expanded. Uh, the larger players were were trying to keep uh, new entrants out of the market. You know, we should, the whole infrastructure movement shifted towards this take or pay arrangements. And, um, yeah, they're just the prices of things in the coal industry went ballistic, you know, ports, rail, all that sort of stuff um, linked to prices. Um, so, you know, we were um, uh, being shut out of the market um, as far as infrastructure goes as well while we're waiting on this approval. It's sort of the old chicken and egg, oh, you haven't got access to infrastructure or we, or we can't sign an infrastructure contract until we've got a until we've got a, uh, a mining list approval. And, you know, a number of coal companies have gone broke doing that in the last uh, 10 years. Um, so because those infrastructure arrangements take or pay, so you're signing your shareholders up to four or $500 million a year of infrastructure payments without any ability to access revenue from your mine, it's... Uh, it's an awful situation, but one that sort of government allows. And um, and uh, uh, so we were we done a merger with a company called Whitehaven Coal. Um, Aston rolled into Whitehaven Coal. It was basically a 50-50 merger. Um, you know, those guys, uh, the guys at Whitehaven had a, a long history in the sector as well, but albeit with uh, smaller and, and lesser quality mines, you know, things that I'd call sort of, um, you know, uh, grade C or, or D sort of mines, um, smaller uh, sort of stuff with higher cost bases and, um, you know, really, you know, experience in riding the market, so to speak. So, uh, you know, if the coal price is up, well, then their price is up, but no, sort of no consistent return to shareholders, which is what uh, what I was looking to develop by um, by riding into White So, uh, anyway, that, that's probably, uh, that probably, you know, set me on my downfall doing that. You know, when we rolled in there, I took my hands off the wheel, so to speak. I was chairman of Aston Resources at the time. Um, I, I uh, stepped back from the board um, just because I thought it was in good hands. Um, silly move. I thought there were people there that were on my side and all that sort of stuff. But uh, the people I thought were on my side were, were really on uh, my financier side. And uh, um, I thought, oh, this is all really easy now. It's all set up and done and, and uh, well, we don't think we need him. So... Uh, so that's what happened. I got uh, I got cleaned out. Um, uh, sold my shares to cover my loan because you know through all this, I you know I was the only equity in the whole thing that had been sort of borrowing to put money in and keep it and push it along. Um, and uh, and that sort of 
probably the other key factor, is, as well as like providing a lot of liquidity to the stock with Whitehaven, uh, made it easy for those guys to be able to take the stock, but also uh, push me down the share register. So I was, you know, around forty percent of Aston, I become worth around twenty percent of Whitehaven Cop. And um, yeah, Farrell on Capital at the time had a leader called uh, Tom Steyer. Uh, Tom Steyer was, uh, you know, uh, like all these, you know, just very, uh, very smart billionaires, you know, decided to go on a, on a campaign of uh, follow the Obama route on climate change and all that sort of stuff. And uh, probably best known for, um, you know, being the main funder to stop the Keystone uh, oil oil project um, and the Keystone pipeline in the in the US, which um, I'm sure most Americans wish was uh, which was up and running today, but thanks to Tom Steyer, it's not. So, uh, you know, and um, yeah, despite the fact that he'd grown just a tremendous amount of his wealth off fossil fuels, uh, turned around, become a, become a climate change campaigner and that obviously changed the direction of Farallon and um, you know I was a great poster boy to say look you know we're not backing this we're not backing fossil fuels anymore we've taken our shares off this bloke in uh, in Australia and um, all that despite the fact that they still had billions out the door to uh, fossil fuel billionaires in Indonesia and continue to support them to today but uh, I was the I was the uh, I was the easy one the the boyfriend girl mate was uh, not not connected in too many high places right <laughs> No, it's an inter- obviously interesting story that, that you went through. Did you ever think when you were when you started out in the mining industry as a obviously a tradesman that you would get to? I mean, was it even your vision to be a CEO, own a mine, own a mining company, obviously generate such wealth? Was it your ever vision to do that, or did, did it just follow a natural progression as you got more experience within the industry? Yeah, I think it was just uh, like a natural progression. I think even, um, you know, it was obviously when you're an apprentice, you just, you know, you're all eyes and ears, right? You're just trying to learn and grow. And then that construction experience and seeing our minds come together. And, um, you know, working at Bengala, I uh, worked for a lot of good people there at Peabody. Um, you know, it was a low-cost operation, really reset the, the cost base of the industry. I think the, the first uh, load of coal we sold at Bengala was, was about $12 US. Uh, um, that was that was the price we got at the time. <laughs> so uh, and they were still making money off it. So um, really got a good understanding of a low cost operation there, but also the value of uh, of teamwork and partnerships and having your having everyone pull in the one direction. Uh, there's a lot of good people employed there at Bengala, and uh, you know I I, I uh, there's probably probably been another twenty CEOs come out of the guys that were there working on the ground, whether they were driving trucks, working in the wash plant, or or, uh, or engineers, there's been a lot of people grow out of that operation. So, you know, the, I think um, it was key learnings there for a lot of people. And then uh, <coughs> just from, yeah, we all go to work every day and work for people that they go, yeah, he's really good. I like working for him. He's, you know, they, those people know what they're doing or, uh, you know, yeah, she's great. I want to be on her side. I'll, I'll believe what she says. But there's a lot of, um, there's a lot there too that are just there like, wow, how's, how is that guy my boss? And there's, uh, uh, there's a fair bit of that goes on in the mining industry, you know. So, and, and, you know, those people may have been competent once, they were never competent, but just as people grow, things get bored to them or they're less interested. And I was sort of young and enthusiastic and uh, uh, <coughs> wanted to make an impact. So I um, was always looking for, you know, I'm big on continuous improvement. I think uh, if you can improve something once, it can be improved again and, um, and just always looking for, for new measures, you know. So um, I think there's a lot. A lot more that can be done better in the coal industry, um, and uh, you know, I think that's been held back a fair bit by bureaucracy and you know, large boards, large management teams, all that sort of stuff. You know, there just aren't that many good people to warrant have as many people in the office at the coal mine as there is on the ground. So uh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. I was going to say, you mentioned that you sold your house to obviously yeah. then put into investment. Was that yeah. a bit of a scary time by making that, having that, making that decision? Um, oh, yeah, of course. I, you know, the wife is never real happy about decisions <laughs> like that. But, uh, you know, we were, we were, I was chasing something. I was, uh, you know, I've been on the roster for 10 years, night shift, all that sort of stuff. I was only in my mid-20s when I went out and done that. And then when I went into business, I thought, you know, it was the maintenance business was employing about 20 people or so. And, uh, you know, the phone just never stopped. It never, and I was, there was a fair bit there where I was going, well, what have I done? But, um, uh, you know, switching over to uh, actually drilling on the feasibilities, I enjoyed that a lot more, um, less, you know, a lot less uh, bureaucracy and dealing with management and administration than there is actually getting on with the job. So that's what I enjoyed. Um, and, uh, yeah, and turns out uh, no regrets about selling that house. No, nah, I don't suppose you do. Um, yes, yeah. What what are some of the lessons that you've learned sort of during your career, which you probably could have changed or done differently, knowing that what you just sort of know now? Oh, well, uh, you know, keep your hands on the wheel. You know, don't uh, don't trust others. You can't, you know, as an entrepreneur or as somebody with the, the vision or the, the founder, you just can't trust anybody else to have that same passion and success for what you're trying to achieve. Um, you know, basically there's there's no one that I've really employed or, or charged in those executive roles I'd employ again. Um, you know, those sort of people are just, you know, people come along, they take advantage, they go for the ride, they go through the motions. And, and particularly when you're publicly listed, that's very easy to do. You know, you, you get your script and you just roll out and just keep going to your meetings and having your lunches and stuff. But, um, you know, in the coal sector, it was, it was wide open to be sort of for a new entrant uh, or a new, a new um, you know, source of thinking uh, because, um, you know, everybody was just so stuck. You know, there's even even now today. You know, there's no leadership in the sector. Um, you know, I um, for all Glencore's foibles and stuff like that, they have provided a bit of ingenuity to the sector, and they have driven it forward. And they have been, you know, a huge supporter of the sector. They've bought everything they can get their hands on, and even when they tell their shareholders they can't buy any more coal, they still turn up in Columbia and buy a new coal mine. So, you know, they, um, they you know, those guys, are, and, and it's set to reward them. You know, they're going to put up a monster profit this year and uh, and do very well. Whereas, you know, all the Australian publicly listed and all that, they've just sat there and sat on their hands and done nothing because they're too concerned that, uh, you know, all um, the great unwashed and all God's mistakes are going to turn up on their doorstep uh, having a go at them about climate change and stuff. Just, uh, it's been, you know, to see our industry taken over by, um, you know, largely Chinese investors in Glencore, it's been, uh, I don't think it's been good for the industry long term. Um, did you have any sort of mentors or good solid people that you could have uh, trusted and rely on during your career, um, and what did you learn from some of those people? Uh, certainly didn't have any good, solid people. I'd still have my wealth if I, if I had been surrounded by any of them. Um, but, uh, no, I didn't have any of them. Uh, probably Ken Talbot, like I said, at MacArthur Cole, was probably the, the one guy that um, the one guy that I looked at as a mentor. Um, you know, Ken was, you know, probably a bit like myself, uh, misunderstood in, cir- in circles and all that sort of stuff. And, and uh, But he, he really had to take on the mining brigade to get his assets into production and, uh, and sort of did so. So he was uh, yeah, probably 20 years, 20, 25 years older than me, Ken, but we had a real uh, bonded connection over what we'd been through. And um, you know, I think he admired my, my tenacity and persistence just the same way I admired his. So, uh, yeah, and, and just a real character as well. Just a, just a great guy. What were some of the highlights of your career and some of the legacies that you left be, left behind 
to some of the locals and people within the sort of New South Wales region? Oh, well, um, I'm 46 years old. I don't think it's over. But uh, so um, I, th- I think there's another chapter or two to tell yet. But uh, look, I've always been proud of um, you know, offering, offering people uh, employment, um, you know, particularly people on the ground. You know, what, what we do in mining is, a, you know, I, I think it's akin to sport. You know, you get good teams and you get bad teams, but everybody's got to work together and the ability of people to work together and function as one and, and be, uh, you know, informed and know what the game plan is and stuff like that uh, is how you get good teams. Um, you know, those people traditionally um, are employed in, you know, lower paying jobs and that sort of stuff and mining allows them to, you know, provide for their families at a much higher level and provide for themselves and, and I think it's, uh, you know, mining's a great, a great, uh, great employer in that sense. So, um, you know, Gunnedah, for instance, when we took that on um, at Malls Creek, you know, Gunnedah's grown substantially since then, um, you know, a lot nicer housing, a lot more shopping, a lot more everything, you know, the, the town's really firm. So sort of proud of the role that we, uh, we played in that. Um, you know, Middlemount was already established community. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd like to think that the, the, the jobs that we've created have been full-time jobs, um, and that's, that's important. Um, I think, you know, a lot of these large miners and that now, um, <clears throat> not just in the mining sector, not just in the coal sector, but, but mining generally, they all wave their arms and say, oh, we need more people, we need more people, we need more people. Well, how about you give the guys that are in the, and the girls that are working there a full-time job? Start by employing the ones you have. And, and giving full-time employment instead of running a, a 70-30 or a 60-40 with everybody that's been on casual for the last five or six years. So I think that's one of the real detriments of the industry. So I'm glad to say that we, did, we didn't, uh, in my time, had, hadn't fallen into that model um, and continued to offer full-time employment and, uh, and training. I think, um, you know, apprentices, there's just not enough of them, never has been. And, um, you know, the industry's, you know, suffering a bit now. You can't just depend on contractors and everybody else that you employ to, uh, to do that. You should take a more hands-on role in, in that sort of stuff yourself. So, you know, proud of the, um, proud of, uh, you know, the royalties that we that we uh, generate, the tax that we pay, all that sort of stuff. It's all, uh, it's all uh, numbers that are just mind-boggling to me these days. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to just give us an update of what, what you're up to now. <laughs> Mate, I've, um, I've been pretty quiet, so I'm involved in some litigation uh, against Whitehaven um, for, for over that transaction. Um, I also sold Whitehaven a company called Boardwalk Resources, and that's been, you know, Boardwalk had a number of, um, you know, quality assets, which were which were to be in the development pipeline of Whitehaven. Um, you know, just, you know, I can't see anything other than spite and animosity as to why they haven't developed them. They were sort of right on the verge of, um, you know, being developed and, you um, or having a mining lease um, applied for, and that's really all you can do is apply for a mining lease because once you go into the hands of government, you never really know what's going to happen. Um, but, uh, yeah, nothing's been done with them. They've been buried in the portfolio. Um, to, to see Whitehaven go out and buy an asset like Winchester South was, was really disappointing. You know, it's a really high-ash, high-cost operation. So, um, you know, it just all points to the fact that, you know, it's, uh, I don't really know what they're, what they're doing. So, uh, you know, it's... Um, that's that's occupied a fair bit of my time. Um, you know, I still uh, consult to a couple of people um, on the quiet in the industry and give them a hand, and I've participated in a few processes and stuff like that uh, with mines for sale. Um, but, uh, you know, investment banks, um, you know, I turn up there and then they say, oh, no, you can't sell it to Nathan Tinkler because he'll make it profitable or he'll make it sustainable. You can't do that. So, you know, people want to sell assets, but they don't want to sell them to anybody who's going to make it successful. They want to sell it to somebody who's going to fail with it. And that's, uh, you know, you're not going to be successful in this industry unless you're prepared to speak up, be an advocate for your industry and be an advocate for your mind. 
And, um, you know, I don't know if you see last week, there was a BHP announced at the end of the week that they're going to close Mount Arthur North. That's 2,000 jobs gone out of the Hunter Valley in the next few years. You know, that's just, uh, there were avenues there to sell that mine. Um, I certainly would, uh, well, I would certainly like to put some people together to buy it and, uh, and protect that. It's, a, it's probably the best asset in the Hunter Valley. And to think that's going to get shut down, it just goes to show you the impact of, uh, of um, I suppose, politics and ESG and all these sort of things uh, on, on the industry, you know, and nobody's prepared to stand there and say it's wrong. So nobody can tell you when it's going to rain next or, you know, the impact of uh, the impact of climate change around things like, um, you know, nat- just natural events, uh, whether it be Mother Nature or whatever. Nobody can subscribe to them, but somehow humans with their 4% of input into the world are, are going to control it all. And certainly that's even, that's even to a lesser extent in Australia, which I just think makes the whole thing laughable. So... Uh, <clears throat> you know, maybe the lights will go out there soon. We've got a got a problem at the moment with power supply and stuff in Australia. We've uh, turned over all our power stations to uh, to essentially green boards and stuff, and so the maintenance isn't going on to make coal look unreliable, so it can compete with uh, so renewables can compete on a cost basis. And um, I think it might need the sadly might need the lights to go out in Sydney for a few weeks to um, uh, get people to say, oh, well, are we really that worried about climate change? Are we you know have a look at the real facts behind it rather than just uh, rather than just uh, following the media agenda. Your, obviously, expertise is in coal. Um, I just want to give us a, an overview of the global coal industry at present. And obviously, before we were speaking on, uh, before we come on, uh, start recording this, I was obviously speaking about the UK and there seems to be a little bit of a resurgence in the coal industry here in the UK after obviously yeah. shutting all down all their coal mines back in the, back in the 80s. Um, so, yeah, just wanted to give us an overview of, what the coal industry is at the moment across the world? Well, I think it's 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 not too different to things like oil and gas and so forth. You know, the world's in a bit of a, an energy struggle at the moment. So, um, yeah, for me, that's been caused by a lack of investment in our traditional sources of traditional sources of energy and a uh, a um, just the blatant lies that have been told around renewables and their costs and outputs and things like that. So, you know, um, banks and funds and all these people, they're wonderful spreadsheet miners, um, but I find when you walk out of the office, uh, generally most of what you've been fed is bullshit. So, you know, I think, um, you know, coal's a great example of that. You know, in, in, uh, in America, they were able to turn off coal because they had gas under their feet and other, other alternatives. Uh, in Southeast Asia, we don't have that. Um, you know, we have coal under our feet and that's our cheapest alternative and it's always going to be. But um, nobody has made an effort to actually use that in a more efficient way with heli power stations or anything like that. Uh, we just wanted to continue to use the old, uh, the old technology from the 1950s and 60s. So, you know, I don't really think we've given, chance, given coal a chance in Australia. Um, you know, we've just continued to, you know, use the, the highest polluting methods, methods of uh, power production, um, which is just ridiculous. But, um, you know, I think things like Loy Yang and so, so forth in Australia are very, you know, they use, still use brown coal and that powers Victoria, which is probably one of our greenest states. So the hypocrisy around all this argument is ridiculous. But one thing that's for certain is that, you know, governments want to keep their people in power and, you know, they need to keep their people in power or they won't be in power. So, you know, what you're seeing now is a real battle between uh, between countries to secure coal supply. And um, you know, we've still got billions of people out there that are living in poverty as well. Um, but somehow that doesn't seem as important as, uh, you know, throwing money at climate change. Um, I think that's all well and good to be, you know, standing there in your house on the beach and saying, well, isn't life great? And whether your power bill's $1,000 or $10,000 isn't going to make much difference to them, but it will to the people on the ground. So, you know, we should have the cheapest power in the world in Australia. You know, we have plenty of coal, we have plenty of resources, and we mine 
plenty of coal. So, you know, some of that coal should be used for a local power production, but the way that the industry has been deregulated with um, governments selling off power stations and so forth, um, you know, Australian people are now paying for their power generation what they do in Japan, you know, where everybody's paying export prices. So um, we don't get any cheaper. It's just as dear here as it is everywhere else at the moment, and it's going to continue to go that way until... Uh, until some sensible solutions are put on, uh, listened to by government and put on the table. So um, I don't think this is a problem that's going anyway soon. You know, we, we didn't get here in six months. You know, we've had this whole climate change renewable debate's been going on for a decade and it's just made things worse. You guys are, we're probably six or 12 months behind you guys in Europe where um, we're um, uh, effectively, you know, the, there's been a, a power a power shortage, of, like you say, what you're going through over there. That's just starting to hit in Australia. And, um, with prices the way they are and energy the way they are and people like Glencore controlling the coal market, I don't think you're going to buy too much uh, cheaply uh, anytime soon. So, um, yeah, it'll be uh, an interesting period going forward. Um, yeah, obviously, with uh, Russia and stuff like that, um, their coal coming out of the market, it certainly isn't helping Europe. It has had less impact in Southeast Asia, particularly, uh, but um, it's had probably more impact on the Met coal market uh, in Southeast Asia than it has on the power market. So, um you know, it'll be, uh, it's going to be a boom time for coal producers over the next uh, little while. And I think the only way that you're going to see that come down anytime soon is, um, you know, governments actually getting out of their own way and approving new coal mines to get uh, to get developed. So um, rather than the, the decade-long period it's taken for things like Malls Creek and, and um, New Ackland and so forth to get approved. There's obviously a lot of negati- negativity around coal, mainly due to its obviously clean <coughs> form of energy. So why is coal very much needed around the world? Obviously, we've been speaking a little bit about it, but why are people against it? Is it just to do with climate change, or is there something else? Oh, I don't know. I can. We've used it for used it for centuries. Um, you know, really for me, it just seemed it started with the old Al Gore, the old Al Gore thing, and you know, we should all be uh, we should all be blown up by now. We're past two thousand twenty, so um, you know, it's it's marketing at its best, mate. You know, I think uh, I think you know, there's a there's a few select people in the world that got behind this and, you know, the oil and gas thought, well, better to throw coal under the bus than, than us. Um, you know, there's plenty of industries that pollute more than coal, but, uh, you know, it's become the whipping boy. And, you know, I certainly felt that when I was, uh, when I had Aston Resources and stuff like that. Um, there's a, just a ridiculous media agenda behind the behind the whole thing. You just cannot get any impartiality around it, even to the point where scientists like Ian Plimmer, who's, you know, probably one of our greatest scientists in Australia. Um, he's written some great books, actually, uh, um, on uh, on climate change and and just the uh, the marketing and so forth behind it, and just how the how the metrics have been twisted. But uh, you know, nobody stands back and, and looks at a broader picture. It's just uh, we're all headlines and uh, clickbait these days, and um, there's too much of that. And sadly, the the younger generation is starting at school these days. It's starting at school and indoctrinating people were there and uh, only brought up with one line of thinking. So, um, you know, until people can, uh, until we can change that um, and people might have to live in darkness for a little while for that to happen, um, I think it's the, you know, the coal industry is going to be, going to be, uh, going to be hard to support. But, um, you know, it's, there hasn't, coal hasn't helped itself a great deal either and it hasn't really had much leadership. Um, probably the last person to speak up on behalf of the industry was Greg Boyce when he was uh, CEO of Peabody and, uh, and led a good campaign around that. Um, but then coal prices tanked and, and went the way they did um, in, the, in the US, you know, because, you know, as I said, they had plenty of oil and gas under their feet. They could switch off power stations and, and move, to, uh, move to alternative sources. But... Um, you know, that, that's not the case in Southeast Asia. So I don't think most Australians realise that. And um, 
you know, we haven't got any, we haven't got any natural gas. We've sold it all. It all gets exported, every bit of it. <laughs> so we can't even security, can't even secure any domestic supply of our own gas. Um, so uh, yeah, no, there's there's lots of lots of challenges. But uh, coal, like I said, coal hasn't done much to help itself. And even even the union that is supposed to defend the the, the boots on the ground, um, yeah, they uh, they sidled up. They got infiltrated by the Greens, and all of a sudden they're against fossil fuels too. So it's it's actually quite unbelievable. You know, it's been a very well organised campaign, um, but uh, not one that's been built on much science. It's just been built on a on a marketing campaign, so to speak. So um, yeah, it's. It's been very, you know, it's been a tough decade for the coal industry and anyone involved in it. But uh, I think uh, the next decade will uh, probably give a lot of that back, pay back those hard times. Yes, certainly. Um, what advice would you give any aspiring mining professional that wants to run their mining uh, own mining company like you did? Um, that hasn't gone down the, I suppose, the the official route of being going to university, but has the hunger to desire uh, and the desire to succeed. Yeah, look, uh, as I said, keep your hands on the wheel, right? Uh, you know, stay true. Uh, be mindful of the people below you and your objectives and, and your uh, and how much you need the people below you. You, know? it's, you, you can't uh, you can't get uh, you know. And when I say below you, I mean in the org chart, right? So, <laughs> um, you know, you need to bring people with you. Um, you can't do it on your own. Uh, you bring people with you. You build good teams. Uh, but but keep your hand on the on the wheel. You know, culture is so important in any organisation and to. You know, take your hands off the wheel. Uh, you're putting other people in control of that culture, and that's when uh, that's when things go to shit. So, you know, um, as entrepreneurs, there's never any many people out there that are saying, "Yeah, you're doing the right thing." Well, that's a great idea because everyone just wants to question you and play devil's advocate. That's just the that's just the nature of the beast. You know, people people don't often see the vision, and they don't often find the way until uh, until they actually they're standing there in front of them and saying, "Oh, yeah, that that works. That works." So, um, you know, it's it's very difficult. It's not easy. It takes just a uh, You've got to be a glutton for punishment. You, you've got to you've got to uh, love being told no, and uh, and want to fight against adversity because that's all it is. So um, you know, but if you can do those things and stay true to your course, well then I think uh, you know, and you know what you're talking about, then uh, you're a good chance of getting there. But you know, it's just endless hours, just endless hours of uh, you know research, study, um, and face to face. You know, I find that. The face-to-face stuff is is really just the tail end of all the work and the, and the reading and all that sort of stuff that you put in to understand your subject. So, uh, you know, you never want to walk into a meeting with a hedge fund manager or another coal CEO or whatever, and uh, and and be on the other be on the other end of the conversation. You want to be leading it. So, um, yeah, they're, they're not easy things to do, and you've really got to know your game to do that. But uh, you know, it's there's a reason there's not sort of many people that have done that. The the ones in Australia that have done it have. You know, I think I've previously had a big head start. Um, you know, I was a geologist at the department for 30 years and I left with all these tenements. You know, that, that's not really an entrepreneurial type event. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's, that's a hell of a going away present. Um, but that, they're the sort of people that have generally made it in Australia, not someone that's come off the tools. So, uh, yeah, it's a different philosophy and a different mindset, I think. Yeah. Um, so what's the outlook for, for Nathan uh, over the coming years and, and uh, and I suppose also the the coal industry over the coming years. Oh look, I'd like to think I get my uh, get my get back into the the coal game and get my hands on some assets. Um, yeah, that, that's that's I don't think anybody doubts that I know what I'm doing and, and how to do that. But um, yeah, we're um, a lot of these funders these days uh, have the you know the elite silly and gullible crowd that they've got to uh, um, answer to, and ESG just rules everyone out. So. Uh, 
you know, a lot of people are just too scared to fund. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's back, uh, back uh, has come around full circle yet where people are going to say, actually, no, we do need power. Um, they want to keep plowing billions of dollars in renewables, be my guess. I'm not saying it can't be part of the answer, but I don't think there is just a single part of the answer. I think it's a combination of, you know, coal, oil, gas, renewables. It's and the cheapest source of power is always going to be whatever you've got under your feet or as close to infrastructure. So, um, you know, the nuclear debate surfaced its head again in Australia. Um, I don't know how that happens anytime soon. The, just the approval level you've got to go through. You know, you need approval for every country in the world to, to do anything um, with nuclear. Um, so I think that's that's a big challenge um, and means it's not a near-term solution. So so I think coal, despite it's, uh, it feels a little bit like GFC time again with where the market is and the fact that, um, you know, there's no money around for resources and, and so forth. And, and boards are unloading. They're not unloading because there's these assets are, aren't economic, they're unloading because of investor pressure and the fact that, you know, they don't want to be seen to hold fossil fuel assets. But, uh, you know, they're still assets we all rely on and uh, to keep, keep the power on and, uh, and there's a place for them in the, in, the, uh, in the commercial world, whether that's private or public, I'm not sure, but in the, certainly in the public markets, nobody's actually generated consistent returns to actually make people want to buy stocks either. So, you know, you can't you can't throw off a dividend every seven years and say, oh, why aren't you buying my stock? I don't think it matters what industry you're in then. Uh, people are going to say, well, I'm not buying it because you're not giving me a dividend. So, um, you know, and there's probably not going to be the capital growth in in uh, in stocks that there was once either because of, because of the fact that you haven't got big funds that are coming in to participate and stuff like that. So, you know, I think there'll be um, uh, on bullish on the next 10 years for coal. I think there's a real... There's a real need for people to have power and still continue to lift uh, lift billions out of poverty. And um, I think you know, the next ten years is probably going to give back what the what the last ten years has taken away. And if you had a sort of clear path in front of you, what is your ideal scenario over, over the next say five years? Oh, look, I'd like to I'd like to make an acquisition of an operating lot. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, I, th- I still think there's a place for Morris to be developed as well in Australia. Um, uh, and you know the lights going out is key to that. You know all these things are so much dependent on government uh, because government, at the end of the day, giveth and they taketh away, and that's what they've. Uh, that's been my experience with them. Um, so new mine approvals will make will continue to bring down you know the cost of uh, of coal power um, as we get more coal into the market and we get uh, uh, new new mines. Obviously, operated generally a much lower strip ratio than than uh, older mines or things that have been in production for 20 or 30 years, which is really where we're at in Australia. A lot of our mines are, are very historic. So, um, you know, I think uh, new, new mines will help lower the, lower the price of uh, uh, coal as a, as a feed source. Um, and then uh, I'd also like to see some new power generation in Australia. You know, I, I don't know why we have to bet the farm on renewables. Why can't we build a new lower, <clears throat> lower emission power station in, uh, in Australia? So that at least we've got a got a hedge against you know if in twenty years time renewables is feeding at all and and uh, and there's no no need for coal power okay well it gets turned off we you know coal won't be able to compete if all the things that um, you know ESG wants to tell us about renewables of the future and all that's going to be cheaper and stuff well that's true well then you know, coal will naturally just be phased out but if it's not do we all have to sit around in the dark and wait till it till it is um, you know that's the sort of attitude government and investment has taken to it which. Uh, which I just think is a you know a, a digital approach. You know, it's either you know all or nothing, and it's just it's leading to this these problems we're seeing around the world at the moment with um, with power, uh, where the, you know uh, there's just not enough energy in the world to uh, to sustain us. 
And lastly, just wonder if you have any final thoughts that you want to share. Um, obviously, most of the listeners here are obviously from the mining industry around the world. Um, just wonder if you had any final thoughts. Oh, yeah, I'd just like to say, you know, particularly the guys in coal, you know, just, um, you know, anyone who works in the coal industry, just be proud of uh, be proud of what you're doing. You know, you are keeping the lights on. We've all taken a tremendous, uh, you know, slap in the mouth and everybody wants to talk about how dirty the industry is. But uh, like or not, we power the opportunities that everyone out there has. And uh, whether it's uh, sending your kids to school or, or uh, turning on your air conditioner, everybody does that because they, uh, they have coal-fired power, particularly in Australia. So, um Shouldn't be embarrassed about providing that and shouldn't be embarrassed about uh, providing it to everyone else less fortunate in the world either. So um, let the elite, uh, elite silly and gullible um, continue on their way and just, uh, you know, stay true to your course, believe in what you're doing. Yeah. Nathan, really appreciate your time um, showing us the insight to your, your career and obviously your thoughts around coal. Um, obviously, it is needed and it is needed for the short and medium term. Maybe the long term, maybe a different scenario. Um, but certainly for the short and medium term, it is needed around the world. And as I mentioned, the UK have even looking at opening up a few coal mines. So <laughs> there's some there's something happening there, um, even though they decided to close down all the coal mines um, 30, 40 years ago. Um, yeah. But really appreciate your insight to, uh, to um, the coal industry and educating our audience around the world who may be, may be in coal or maybe in base or precious metals. So... Um, Really appreciate your time. Um, and maybe come on next year uh, if there's any uh, further updates that you may have with the industry or even in whatever you're doing. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Rob. No, no worries. Um, hope you enjoyed that episode. I certainly did. Um, appreciate if you can share amongst um, people that you know in the industry all around the world um, and people, especially those in Australia who are in the coal industry. I'm sure they would take some air. Uh, um, important points away from what Nathan has said. So appreciate your continued support. And until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.